0: Pastor John, it's good to see you today. Um, as as I, I called you the other day, I told you we were thinking about doing a series on um, our core values here at Sagemont. But before we start talking about core values, I want to ask, how are you and Kathy doing? I know that's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> What's your life been
1: like? Well, we're doing fine. We're having a good time. We're uh, traveling some and we're visiting different ministries and uh, churches on Sunday and
0: But everything's going good. What's been the greatest challenge of being sort of retired from full-time vocational ministry here at SageMont? And then the second question is, I want to ask you, what's been the greatest joy? Well, the
1: greatest challenge is just
0: slowing down
1: and getting focused and finding, Lord, what would you have me to do? I don't think the time ever comes in our lives until he calls us home that he doesn't have a plan and a purpose. Amen. And the challenge is, to know and identify Amen. that. It's oh, and by the way, amazing. I've been listening to you preach every Sunday, so uh, I think your wife's doing good. in <laughs> <been laughs> writing right. no sermons, eh? <laughs>
0: you told me the other day I hadn't laid an egg yet, but that's, that's very kind of you. What's been the greatest joy of being sort of retired from Sagemont? You're still in ministry, but you're retired from everyday pastoring at Sagemont. What's been the, the biggest joy for you? Well, the joy is just
1: to know that God is... Um, is not finished with you. Um, I think it was Yogi Berra that said, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> if right. he didn't say it, he should have. That's but, right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that uh, you, it never ends until the Lord says it's time to come home.
0: Well, several years ago, you and Pastor Chuck and the team uh, came up with a set of seven core values. And uh, here are the seven values, Pastor John, is loving God, um, each individual matters, the authority of Scripture, debt freedom, excellence, relevance, and spiritual growth. And I didn't realize this at first, but that's actually a, an acrostic for leaders, which is pretty cool that y'all came up with that. So I'm new here, and I thought about when, when we're going to preach through these, it might be really good for you to come and, and, and tell us a little bit about the history behind each one of them and why you chose them and why these are the things that we said, hey, as a church, we value them the most. And so for folks that are that are new to Sagemont like me, um, the first value is loving God. And you put that first. And so why at Sagemont is, is loving God, both as a church and as an individual, so important.
1: You know, just... Before we put the core values together, we came up with we would be living proof of a loving God to a watching world, that we would be doers of the Word and not hearers. And of course, at the top, uh, we were unanimous real quickly, would be we're going to love God with, with all of God. our heart and all of our mind, and all of our soul. We're here to serve and not be served, and that we would just love Him with all that we had, our our spiritual gifts, our talents, our resources, all of it, but He must have preeminence. Okay.
0: You know, the Lord has some <clears throat> some really strong things to say about keeping... Him at the center of the church and loving Him. You remember in Revelation 2, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that in the sermon that Jesus <laughs> said, this is a church in Ephesus that's doing all these things so well, but you have walked away from your first love. And so I know I say on behalf of all of us, thank you for making that uh, the most important thing of Sagemont. I wouldn't be here if that wasn't the most important thing in Sagemont. And it's been so evident as I've been here for a few months that the, the, the people that you pastored for so long love the Lord. So thank you so much for being here with us today and, uh, next week. I look forward to seeing you again.
1: Let me say one other thing. Loving God makes it easy to love others. The more we focus on loving Him, then we can, whosoever will, can come and we can minister to them.
0: All right. Isn't that great? You know, they, they, they cut out my favorite part of that video because after I asked him, what's been the best part of being retired from full-time vocational ministry here at Sagemont, and he gave that you know amazing godly answer. I stopped and I said, Pastor, what you're supposed to say is that your favorite part is being with Kathy, and he laughed, um, but they cut that out. So anyway, open up your Bibles uh, to the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, and um, I- I'm not in one text today, but I'm in multiple ones, so you can follow along. Um, Ephesians three 18. we'll get there in just a minute. But as we said in the video, we're beginning our series on core values at Sagemont. Pastor John and the team came up with a group of seven of them years ago. We're looking at each one of them for the next few weeks and to be a reminder of what it is that we do as a church and why we do them. And the first one they're going to be looking at is the most important, hands down. And that is um, our core value of and our calling to love God. And that's the most important one, and I say that it's the most important value because it's the, it's the value that all the other ones are built on. You know, we can, we can talk about being debt-free. We can talk about being excellent. We can talk about being relevant. We can do all those other things till we're blue in the face, but if we don't love the Lord first, then all we are is just a Christian country club with a nice building, amen? And so, that's the most important thing that we're about as a church, if you're new here, that's it. That's what we're about. We're about loving the Lord. And here's the amazing part of all, all this is that the Bible tells us that before we ever loved God, God loved us first. Is that He, that's the cool thing, He is the initiator in this relationship of love. And In 1 John 4, 19, I'm just going to read it to you. It says, we love because He first loved us. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. That of all the ways that the creator God of the universe could think about you and feel about you, that the scripture says that he loves you. In Ephesians 3.18, it reminds us of that. Paul tells us, he said, I hope that you're able to comprehend what is the length and what is the width and what is the height and what is the depth of God's love. And some of you that are here this morning... Maybe more than anything else that I could say today, you need to be reminded of that truth that God loves you. We're in a pandemic and we're in the middle of our country tearing itself apart, but guys, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay because God loves us. And you and I, you and I can never be more loved by God than we are right in this second. And that's an amazing thing to remember. But then the uh, the Scripture tells us that in response to this unbelievable love that God has for us, that we're to love Him back. That we're to love Him back. And so the question I want to get to the bottom of today is, what what does it look like for us to love God? What does the Scripture say about us loving God? Does, Does loving God mean that we're just supposed to have warm, fuzzy feelings about it? Does loving God mean, uh, does it mean that I love the Lord if I come here and worship and I have sort of an emotional experience with Him during worship? Does that mean I love God? Does it mean that I love God if I show up to church at least three times during the month? Does that mean I love God? Well, the Bible actually has a ton of things to say about what it looks like and what it means to love God and for what it means for us to be a church that loves the Lord, but I want to approach this sermon a little differently today. I want to talk about Uh, three barriers that I've sort of noticed out there in the culture and in the church that hinder us from loving the Lord. I want to talk about three barriers, three things that keep us from loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, here are the three barriers um, that I'm going to walk through today that keep us from being lovers of God. And here's the first one, self-authority, self-authority. The other is self-obsession. I'm going to talk about self-obsession and how that keeps us from loving God. And then finally, self-defining and how we're people that self-define and that hinders us from loving the Lord. I'm going to walk through those three things today and how they hinder us from loving God and we're going to be done. So let's look at the first one together. And so the first hindrance to us loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is self-authority. Now what do I mean by that? What do I mean by self-authority? Okay, one of the primary ways, church, that the Scripture calls us to be a lover of the Lord is when we submit to Him as the ultimate authority in our lives. And so, self-authority can be defined as when I sort of look at myself and I look at me as the final authority for what is good and right in my life, instead of submitting to God and to His authority as to what is good and right in my life. And when you think about it, guys, check this out, that was the very first sin that was ever committed in the the garden. God created Adam and Eve, He put them in the garden, He said, you can eat anything you want from the garden, just don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And when you think about what God was asking of them, it was pretty simple. He gave them a ton of freedom to eat anything they wanted, except He established His authority, and He said, hey, I don't want you to eat from this particular tree. God says, I want you to obey my authority in this area. But what happened? Satan came along He said, hey, did God really say that if you eat of the tree, you're going to die? And so they looked at the fruit, said it was good, and they, and they thought, what's the big deal? And they ate it. Now listen carefully. At the end of the day, the act of eating a piece of fruit is not a sin. What was the sin? The sin was that Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority in their life. Now, here's, the, here's a question that we got to get to the bottom of, because this is what it means to love God. We submit to His authority. Here's the question. Why does God establish His authority in our lives and say, hey, I want you to obey it? Why does God do that? Um, I mean, was, was God just being mean when He said, hey, don't, don't eat that fruit? Was He just being mean? Was God just trying to prove some point was the Lord, when He said, hey, you can eat anything you want, but don't eat of that tree, was he, just, um, was, was he just sort of trying to withhold what was really good from them and only give them second best? That's not it at all. Don't turn there, but listen carefully. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. I have it on the screen. God tells him. He says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. He establishes his authority there. Watch why. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? And so listen carefully here because this is critical. God did not establish his authority in our lives to keep us from what is good. But he establishes his authority in our life to protect us from what will destroy us. God doesn't place his authority in our lives and say, hey, I want you to submit to it, and I want you to follow it, because he wants to be this cosmic killjoy that keeps us from life's best, but he puts his authority and places it in our lives to point us and to, and to direct us to what is the best for our lives. And so the way that God designed this thing is that obedience to God's authority equals life and peace and blessing. But disobedience to God's authority equals chaos and disorder and ultimately death. Okay, now, this this idea of God having authority and then me submitting to His authority in my life, folks not doing that is in my opinion one of the greatest areas of struggle I see in the modern church and in modern Christianity. What I'm seeing and I'm seeing it a lot, is there's an increasing number of people that call themselves Christians. They're like, I'm a Christian. And if you asked them if they love God, they'd say yes. But at the same time, they're increasingly placing themselves in authority as to what is good and right for their lives and not surrendering to what God says is what's good and right for their lives and submitting to His authority. Um, an illustration that I saw, this is one illustration of a million, but I'll, I'll tell you one. I was, um, one of the best illustrations I see this is in a show that's on television. It's on ABC. Um, it's called The Bachelorette. And um, true story before the Lord. I, I don't watch that show. You can ask my wife, I don't watch it. I don't watch it because it's from the devil. And um, And if you aren't familiar with what this ridiculous show is, they take this woman who's single, and they get like 30 guys, and they all come together, and they go on all these dates for a few weeks, and then she parses it down to one guy, and then they get married. Right? It's a brilliant show. And um, it's—never it's, n- n- mind. Um, anyway, I don't watch it because it's from the devil, but I am on Twitter, and one night I was laying in bed. I was about to go sleep, and I was looking through Twitter, and, and it was trending on Twitter, which means that everybody in the country was talking about it. And so I was like, okay, I'm a pastor, and he's, he didn't know what's going on in the world. So I clicked on Twitter, and like trying to figure out why it was trending, because it was just blowing up. And here's why it was, it was going crazy on Twitter. It's the girl, the bachelorette. Her name was Hannah, and she had, um, she had had biblical relations with a guy on the show. We'll put it that way. And now the problem with that, they, they were not married, and the problem with that is that she claimed to be a Christian. She was very vocal about it on the show. And she read her Bible on the show, and she, again, she's very vocal about being a Christian, but she, she did this with this guy. Now, one of the other guys that was on the show with her was also a Christian, and he confronted her on it. He sort of called her out on her sin. Now, here's the thing. He, he did it in a really judgmental way. He wasn't kind. He wasn't loving. When he sort of challenged her on her sin, he was kind of a jerk about it. But bottom line, he looks at her and says, how, how in the world can you call yourself a Christian and, and do that with this guy? And her response was fascinating. And it's indicative of what we're seeing in the culture, and we're seeing it a lot. She said this. She looks back at the guy, and she said, look, everybody messes up, but I know that Jesus still loves me. Everybody messes up, but I know Jesus still loves me. That's what I'm seeing in modern Christianity. It's this idea... Where people are increasingly saying, I'm gonna do whatever I want, self authority. But it's okay, because Jesus still loves me. Now, here's the thing church, in one sense, that's a true statement. In one sense, that is a true statement. Yes, everybody messes up. And yes, Jesus still loves you. But the problem with that statement is that she had absolutely no remorse whatsoever about rejecting God's authority in her life in regards to sex outside of marriage. None. And I want to read you uh, a verse that sort of pokes some significant holes in her argument, the argument that's sort of coming out in the culture, and it's uh, John 14, 15. Let me read this to you. This is the words of Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so, Sage Mott, we can say all day long that we love God, but the proof that we love God and the evidence that we love God is when we submit to his authority in our lives and do what he says to do, not what we want to do. And my wife and I were talking about that show right after that, and and I told her what she said, that, hey, everybody messes up, but Jesus still loves me. And, And Jennifer made a fascinating comment that I think was incredibly profound when I said that. Jennifer said, you know, Jesus said that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so the question is not whether Hannah, or rather, the question is not whether Jesus loves Hannah. The question is whether Hannah loves Jesus. That's the question, okay? Jennifer's right. If you sin and you fall short of the glory of God, does God still love you? Yes, He does. He absolutely loves you. But the question is when you reject His authority in your life and you willingly sin, the question you've got to get to the bottom of is not does Jesus love you? He always loves you. The question is do you love Jesus? I saw a quote the other day. This is a lead singer of a Christian band that I think sums up the heart behind the culture really well. He said, I'm amazed that so many Christians want the benefits of the kingdom of God with the caveat that they themselves will be the king. So if we want to be a church, if you're going to be an individual person that loves God, you need to sort of begin by asking yourself the question, are there areas in my life where I'm placing my authority over the authority of the Lord. Maybe it's in your finances. You know what the Lord says. You know what He's, what he's asked of you, where His authority has been placed in the air of finances, but you're just doing whatever you want to. Maybe it's in regards to anger. You know what the Lord says, but you're doing whatever you want to do. Maybe it's in regards to gossip or division. You know what the the Scripture says. You know what the authority of the Lord has sort of set out in those areas, but you're still doing whatever it is that you want to do. I could go on and on. But the truest evidence that you love the Lord is not that you say that you love the Lord. It's not that you go to church. The truest evidence that you love the Lord is when you keep His commandments in your life by submitting to His authority. That's the truest evidence. And so, the first barrier to, to loving God, I'm sort of seeing, is this idea of self authority. Okay, now the second barrier to loving God, I want to talk about it for a minute, is, is self obsession. Now, I think we've probably always been this way as a culture, but we're just kind of be, being more aware of it. But, but we live in an extremely self focused, self obsessed culture, and I think it's a huge barrier to loving God the way that we should. I read an article the other day that was talking about selfies. Do you all know what a selfie is? A, se- a selfie is when you, um, you take your phone, and you hold it up, and you take a picture of yourself, and then you post it on social media. And there's nothing wrong with selfies. That's not a big deal, but I looked it up, and I was like, I wonder how many selfies are taken in, an, in a given day in the United States. And there was an article about it. It said on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter alone, there are typically 98 million selfies posted in a given day in the United States. That's a lot of selfies, folks. It's a lot of times people like, Psh, and then put it out. Just say, look at me. We're a self-obsessed culture. I don't think it's a stretch to say that. Now, one of the ways that self-obsession sort of rears its ugly head is through self-centeredness. And self-centeredness, I think if you had to define it, self-centeredness would be this, it's, it's what I say and what I want is more important to me than what you say and what you want. That's self-centeredness. And we struggle with that a lot. And even in the church, we struggle with it. Pastor Stuart Rothberg and I were talking this week during one of our meetings, and he told me a story that was is honestly kind of funny, but this was the first Sunday he was at Sagemont, and Pastor John had brought him in to preach, and he was sitting. I don't remember which sanctuary it was. I'm assuming it's the old one, but he was sitting in the second row, and um, nobody knew who he was. But he was the preacher for the day, and this elderly woman. And the reason I'm telling this story is because she's gone on to be with Jesus, and so I didn't want to embarrass her. But this this older lady came up to Pastor Stewart. And she was really upset, and she looked at him and looked down and said, young man, you're sitting in my seat. (laughs) And and Pastor Stewart, being the gentleman that he is, said, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am, and he got up and he moved, and he went to a different seat. Well, she did, again, she didn't realize that he was uh, the guest pastor, and she asked him to move. And so, she was. Uh, Stuart said uh, she was mortified just a few minutes later when you know, it was time for the pastor to go up, and here's this guy that she made move from her seat, got up and preached, and she came and, and apologized later for doing that. But I want you to think about those words. You're sitting in my seat. What if that had been a first-time visitor at Sagemont? What if that had been somebody that had never heard the gospel? And they come into our church, and that's the first encounter they have with a Christian. Right? I know that's a crazy example, I know none of you would ever do that, all right? But make no mistake, we live in a self-centered culture. Now here's the question, why is self-obsession and self-centeredness a buried or loving God? Why does it hinder us from loving the Lord? And here's the answer, because self-centeredness is the polar opposite of how God called believers to live. It's the polar opposite of how the Lord says, hey, this is what I want you to look like and how I want you to live your life. And so when you look at the Scripture and and hear this, lovers of God, first and foremost, are called to be God-centered. That when you just look at the Bible and you get the whole of the Scripture, when you talk about followers of Christ, sort of the first thing about our lives is that we're supposed to be people that first and foremost are God-centered. Don't shout it out. Theological question. What was the first thing Jesus taught you to pray in the Lord's Prayer? He said, my Father who art in heaven, say it with me, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is a word that means to exalt or to give the highest place. And so Jesus taught us that when you get up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, that the first thing you are to pray is, God, I want you to have the highest place in my life. The prayer that we pray, the first thing out of our mouths is a prayer that's meant to remind us not to be self-centered, but to be God-centered. It's who we are number two, second lovers of God are to be others centered so first we're God-centered and then followers of Christ second we're to be others centered in Philippians 2: three watch what it says. this is such a convicting verse Philippians 2: three it says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition. Can we just sort of stop for a second and look at that right there do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility consider others more important than yourself church that is one of those verses that I fear as Christians we just ignore we read it and we put our finger in our ear and say like, oh, god I, I don't hear that one The way so many of us act, you would think the Bible says, do everything from selfish ambition and with arrogance, consider yourself more important than others. So here's a simple question you can ask yourself today to see if maybe, and I ask myself, if I'm struggling with self-centeredness, and it's this, if somebody were to follow you around for a week and they were to be able to hear your thoughts and hear your conversations and and, and see your interaction with your spouse and your friends and your relationships, they see what you post on Facebook and social media. At the end of that week, what would that person say is the primary message you're sending from your life? At the end of the week, if this person that sort of followed you around, saw those interactions, would they say that the primary message you are sending through your life is look at Jesus? Or would the primary message you send through your life be, look at me. Look at me. Okay? Sage Mott, we're a church that values loving God. We're going to be a church. We're going to be individuals that love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you can't do it from a place of self-centeredness. It's impossible. Here's the last one, and we're done. Last major hindrance that I'm sort of seeing in the church and in our culture that keeps us from loving God, like we're called to, is self-defining. Self-defining. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, we live in a country, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a country that places a really high value on each individual person being able to define themselves. People don't like being defined by anybody or any other thing than how they want to define themselves. Whether it's uh, people, people are defining themselves primarily by their sexuality. They're defining themselves primarily by their gender, by their race, by their political party. And you may say, well, Matt, I don't do any of those things. But the fact of the matter is, whether we sort of realize it or not, so many of us have a tendency to define ourselves by all these sort of things in our life. And the problem is a lot of times God gets the leftovers. And so if I were to ask you the question, what is like the primary thing that defines your life? What is the primary way? If somebody were to ask you, how do you define yourself? What would you say? I know a lot of people, they would say, well, I'm a, I'm a mother, or I'm a grandmother, or I'm a businessman, or I'm a businesswoman, or I'm a student, I'm an athlete, I'm an Aggie, I'm a Longhorn, University of Houston Cougar. And here's, here's a, this is a part of Christianity that I really do think we're ignoring as believers, and it's critical, and I want you to hear this. It's our identity in Christ, because what you think about, when you think about what your primary identity is, that's going to be the primary thing that drives your time, it's going to drive your effort, it's going to drive your worship, Think about it, guys. If you primarily define yourself as a businessman or a mother or a student, that identity is going to drive the majority of your thoughts. It's going to drive the majority of your affections. It's going to drive the majority of your effort and your actions, but the Scripture is screaming from the rooftops that your primary identity is who you are in Christ Jesus. That is your primary identity. As a matter of fact, just as a reminder, let me remind you. Who God says you are, not me. This is who the Lord says you are if you're a believer here today. This is who He says you are. He says you're holy. He says you're blameless. He says you're forgiven, you're loved, you're chosen, you're known, you're called, and you're set apart. He says you're a royal priesthood. You're you're, you're God's special possession. You're an heir to the promise of life. You are a part of the body of Christ, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. He says you you were created in His image. You are His workmanship. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're a new creation, and you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Not me, but... God Almighty says you're a light shining, new life living, darkness overpowering, river of life flowing, power of the resurrection possessing, hell's gate trampling, victorious, unstoppable, adopted child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who you are. More than any other thing about your life, that is who you are. That's how God defines you. That's how God sees you that's who God says you are and one of the greatest ways hear this one of the greatest ways you could ever demonstrate your love for the Lord is when you start to view yourself and you think about yourself and then you ultimately get up in the morning and you live your life not how you define you but how the Lord defines you and so I want to start landing the plane today by asking this question who loves this way who does this Do we have an example out there, anybody we can sort of look to of a person that loved God by rejecting self-authority and just completely submitted to God's authority? Do we have an example of someone that turned from self-obsession? Do we have an example of someone that resisted the temptation to self-define? And the answer is, we do. His name is Jesus. Jesus let go of self-authority. He let it go and he humbled himself to the authority of his father, even to the point of death. Jesus walked away 180 degrees from self-obsession and he left the joy and the comfort of heaven and he came to this messed up planet and he washed the feet of the people he created. Jesus let go, walked away from self-defining and though he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Jesus loved his heavenly father that way every single day of his life and he is our example. But I was thinking about this. You know, there's actually one other group of people that love this way. You know the group of people that actually love this way? They let go of self-authority, self-obsession, self-defining. Children do. It hit me. Children do. Little kids love their parents the way that I think God desires us to love Him. Think about it. When, when my son, he's 20 now, my oldest son, when J.D. was really little, when he was, a, you know, just a little guy, two, three, four, he didn't have any authority at all. All in the world he wanted was to just please his daddy. When J.D. was little, he wasn't self-obsessed. I remember I would walk in the door, coming home from work, and whatever he was doing, playing Legos, coloring, kicking the dog, whatever he was doing, messing with his sister, whatever he was doing, he would immediately stop what he's doing, fling it in the air, and run full speed to me, and scream, Daddy! And then come and hug me. When JD was little, he wasn't self-defining. If anything, he wanted to be just like his daddy. If you were to ask him, he would tell you back in the day when he was a little big boy, he'd say, I want to go to A&M. I want to be in the Corps Cadets. And I want to be a preacher. That's what he'd say. Well, that little boy grew up, you know. He's 20. I dropped him off at college for sophomore year the other day. And here's what I'm realizing. I'm still his dad but my authority in his life diminishes a little bit every day. When I see him, he's still happy to see me, but I promise you, he doesn't drop everything anymore, come running, screaming, Daddy. I'm lucky to get a soap pop, you know, <laughs> as I walk in the door. And you know, he doesn't want to be a preacher anymore. He wants to be a doctor. He's got his own identity. A while back, we found, Jennifer and I found some old videos that we took of him when he was about three years old. And Jennifer and I started playing him, which was a big mistake. <laughs> and in the video, I was out of town. I was traveling, preached somewhere. And he was, he was about three and he was talking to the camera. And Jennifer said, say hi to your daddy. And he's like, hey daddy. And he started blowing me kisses. I love you so much. I can't wait for you to get home. And when I saw that video, guys, I lost it. I mean, I lost it. I ugly cried. And I'm true story, I don't think I've cried that hard since my mom died. I just lost it. And I laid in bed that night, and I was like, why did that hit me so hard? Sitting there trying to figure out, why did that move me so much? Why did... That hit me so hard in church. Here's what I came up with. I miss that little two-year-old little boy. I miss him. I miss him so much. Now, here's the thing. J.D. still loves me just the same. Maybe he even loves me more. Even though he's 20 and he doesn't have a whole, whole bunch to do with me now. But my love hasn't changed one bit for him. I still love him today just as much as I did when I was two, but it hit me like a ton of bricks when I saw that video that I just missed that little boy that all in the world he wanted in life was to be with his daddy. And then I thought to myself, you know, I wonder if God's heart ever aches for us like that. You know, for many of us, there was a time when you love the Lord like little two, three year old J.D. loved me. All in the world you wanted to do was be with Him and please Him and do what it is that He asked you to do. But what happens in our lives? We start choosing to follow our own authority here and we get a little self centered there. When we start caring a little bit more about our own identity and our own dreams and our own hopes than our identity in him and i wonder if the lord's heart ever aches for you and me the way that my heart aches for my son and so if you're here today and as i talked you're struggling with self-authority and you're struggling with maybe a little bit of self-centeredness or obsession or You're like, man, I didn't even think about it, but I'm a person that's kind of wrestling with self-defining. The question is, does God still love you? Oh yeah, he loves you. He's crazy about you. But at the same time, if you're struggling with those things, he probably misses you. He misses you. So would you be willing to offer your heavenly father that kind of love today? I know it would bless him. And if there's ever been someone in the history of the universe that's worthy of that kind of love, it's our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, I I am as guilty of this as anybody in this room. i have picked up and walked after what i want more than what you want i have been self-focused and put my desires over yours and i have cared more about being a preacher and a football coach and a dad than i have being a child of god and lord i just confess that to you today and i pray you'd forgive me lord if there's anyone in the sound of my voice either in this room or at home that has never ended their lives. Said, God, I want to follow you. I want to be your son. I want to be your child. I want you to love me and I want to love you. I pray just in the best way they know how right now they would trust in you as their Lord and Savior. Scripture says when when they do that, they become your child, your son, your daughter, adopted into the family of God. I pray they would do that. Lord, let us be a church God, I'm I'm praying this, I'm asking for this. Could we be a church? Could Sagemont be a church that's known as people that love God? The one we're talked about out there in the world, in Houston, when people talk about us, they don't talk about any other thing, but they talk about that, that. Man, I met somebody from Sagemont the other day. Gosh, they love the Lord. Lord, only your spirit can do that. We pray that you would. We ask that in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.